You're listening to Someone Like Me. This episode was recorded in the early months of 2022. We had just purchased our new Survivor Restoration Campus, and the conversations you hear in this third season will refer to this campus as well as our former name, End Slavery Tennessee. In 2023, our organization rebranded to Ancora Tennessee, ushering a new era as we nurture survivor healing and strategically combat human trafficking in this state of Tennessee. Now, without further ado, we present Season 3 of Someone Like Me. Please enjoy. This is Someone Like Me, the official podcast of Ancora, Tennessee, formerly known as End Slavery, Tennessee. In order to work more effectively with survivors of human trafficking, we need a diverse team of highly trained folks. This team of incredibly important people is called the Direct Service Staff. The professionals on this team take emergency calls, develop individualized care plans based on each survivor's personal needs, and they work with law enforcement or the court system, medical community, education system, as well as other social service agencies and nonprofits to access all available support service options that survivors need along their healing journey. We call the social workers who provide intensive case management care coordinators. They keep in regular contact with survivors both during the course of the intensive research-based programming at Encora, Tennessee, and then they continue to maintain contact with alumni, offering opportunities to stay connected. The direct service staff have massively important work to do, and we are all so proud of all they do to allow our survivors to thrive. Today's episode will allow you to hear the voices and stories of the direct service team, the highs, the lows, and the daily rhythms of their work with Encore Tennessee. Heads up, there are a lot of voices to keep up with in this conversation. Don't feel the pressure to remember which voice goes with which role. Just know that the stories you hear are the most important part of this episode. Because the more you know about what it takes to fight the crime of human trafficking, the better you can help be a part of the change. There are so many people around this table and a half right now. And so what I want to do is just go around and have everyone introduce themselves. Um, and we will start with the first of our two Marissas. I am Marissa Skinner. I am the community response specialist, but essentially I just do all things groups with survivors. I am the second Marissa, Marissa Brownell, and I'm a care coordinator who specifically works with all of our minor referrals. And if her voice sounds familiar, you heard her on last season of Someone Like Me. Marissa was joining us then former as producer. former producer uh, and still doing really amazing things. Okay, next. My name is Emily Guillen. I'm the intervention coordinator, and I do the referrals intake, and I work with law enforcement. My name is Lisa Tonkin, and I'm the resident manager, so I do all things safe house related. My name is Claudia Cornellison. I'm our transportation coordinator. I get our clients where they need to go. 
You all are working on the front lines. You are working with the people that Encore ATN serves. And so this conversation is to get your perspective on what it looks like to daily be working with survivors of human trafficking. So I want to ask you how a day looks for each of you, like, or, you know, share examples. But I think probably every day looks very different for you. So maybe instead, uh, if you want to share some notable things about what patterns might be a part of your days, you know, so this thing that I do usually happens a couple times a week, things that we might not think about when it comes to serving this uh, group of people. Being the resident manager, it definitely looks different from day to day. Um, Normally, we do house meetings and we do medication distribution and we usually meet once a week just to talk about things that are going on in the house. The care coordinators have that opportunity to plan out the week with their clients. So that's usually at the beginning of the week. And then sometimes throughout the week, I'm dealing with maintenance issues. I'm dealing with just stocking and storing the house. And then there's times when the house is in complete crisis and we're just dealing with crisis day to day to day. Um, People transitioning in and out of the house, people relapsing. It tends to be just chaotic sometimes and then sometimes just nice smooth running. So you get to know people pretty well, very well, because you see them in living circumstances. Is there anything that surprises you about the way things happen in the house? Or are there things that you can think of where you were like, okay, I did not expect that? All the time. (laughs) All the time. Well, give us an example, Miss Lisa. Because how long have you been doing it? I've been doing it for four and a half years. Four and a half years. Okay. Yeah. So I've been the only one in this position since it was created four and a half years ago. Um, So lots of change, different houses, houses closing, houses reopening, having people transition in and out, going from 16 women to eight women. Um, So they never cease to surprise me. I mean, there's times I come in the house and the closet door is under their bed. Like, why is their closet door under their bed? They also don't know why their closet door is under their bed. Um, We have a squirrel that bit somebody and I had to figure out if that's do they have rabies? Do we need to go to the ER? What do we need to do with that? So, and then just basic living skills. I had once when the one girl put five pods in the washer. So we had suds going out of the back door. So it, nothing really surprises me, but it also a little bit surprises me. Because <laughs> then I'm like, cool, how are we going to deal with this today? And what's the lesson out of this? And how do we make this strength-based, right? Mm-hmm. I can't just go in and be like, why would you do that? Well, I know why they did that. You know, this is trauma-informed care. So I have to think about what's surrounding that behavior and then talk through that and find a solution for it rather than just, why did you do this? It's like, okay, let's see how we can do it different next time. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Another really good example of how trauma-informed care permeates everything that this organization does, even in doing laundry. And we talk about it in terms of communications and social media and website, but this is another point where people might not think about where trauma-informed care would show up. So that's super interesting. Anybody else want to share some typical like patterns and what your days might look like? I'll share. This is Marissa, a care coordinator. We do so many different things with our clients from week to week, but like a sample, I guess. My case is a little different because I work mostly with our minors, some adults from time to time, but um, we're finding resources for them. Like say somebody's homeless or almost homeless, so we're urgently trying to find 
either temporary or permanent housing for them, taking them to doctor's appointments to get their health issues under control, making sure that they're getting their mental health and emotional health needs met. So encouraging them to go to therapy, meeting with them out in the community, even if that's just relationship building. I do a lot of that with the youth. So we go out to lunch, we go and have coffee, and sometimes it's just hearing what they did that day. And that is all that we're going to do because that's all that they want to talk about that day. So it just varies week to week. Some weeks there's a lot of crisis going on with every client and some weeks it's very mellow and quiet, but everything revolves around the client and meeting their needs and what they're ready to do to move forward. So we never push on them. Oh, you have to do do this. You have to do that. We ask them, what do you want? And we let them take the lead. Mm -hmm. Uh, What does a crisis look like? You mentioned that there's some crisis management. What can you think of some time when you had to manage a crisis and what 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 does that mean? I guess I just mentioned housing, but that's a really big one. Anytime you have a lack of housing and you're homeless or facing homelessness, that's a crisis. And that's something that comes up really often for our clients, the adults and the minors. Um, sometimes our youth get kicked out of their home or they voluntarily run away because they feel like the streets are better than the situation that they're in. That's a crisis that I feel like we all face a lot with our clients, even if they're in the safe house. Like, hey, their move out date's coming up Mm -hmm. and they're not taking any action to apply for housing. They may just end up back in their old situation if they don't take some action. So it's empowering them and offering them options to get to the next step. So yeah, the last crisis that I had was just a youth that needed to leave a bad situation at home and we were able to find them some stable housing and it took about a week, but it, it worked out. So And for people who are listening, the reason why that matters so much, we're talking a lot about it this season, is housing and employment because it eliminates some of these risk factors for being vulnerable to things like trafficking, things like exploitation. It's one of the biggest ways that stability can help against being vulnerable in that way. Anybody else have some different sorts of rhythms that you see on a day? Claudia, I'd be interested to hear kind of what a, a week looks like for you. Yeah, I don't think people realize how much driving that all of us do on a daily basis. I mean, we're constantly trying to get clients where they need to go to appointments. So that's mostly what I do is just a lot of driving, getting clients to their mental health appointments, to their physical health appointments, to do like things like sign up to go to the gym or sign up for fitness classes, to court, to school things. Uh, So I do a lot of driving and I also did not realize I would be doing this this much before I got into this job, but just a lot of listening because I spend a great amount of time with clients. Sometimes they'll just be like maybe a day with four or five hours that I'm in the car with a client. And sometimes they just want to talk and I'm not doing any therapy, but I am just sitting, listening, asking questions. A lot of times we're talking through like anxieties that they might have about wherever we're going, like to the dentist, to a doctor's appointment. So just things like that. So case management, people kind of think they know what that is out in the outside world, right? But intensive case management is something really different. And it's kind of the thing that sets us apart in our organization, Um, especially some of you who've had experience in case management in other spaces. Can you talk about what the difference is between that, which we call care coordinators. That's what we call our case management. We think it's more trauma-informed. But if you've had some experience in another place, talk about what the difference might be and how we do it a little differently. So intensive case management to me would be, first of all, meeting your client where they are, 
and then taking those necessary steps to empower them to get where they would like to be in life. So what that looks like is first meeting with your client, doing a intake assessment, seeing where they might want to go, um, what goals they may have, helping them establish those goals, seeing what resources they have, seeing what barriers are already in place. A lot of times our clients need immediate assistance as far as like housing, like was mentioned before, food resources, employment, job skills, training, So meeting them where they are there and seeing how they can connect them with those resources um, and make those referrals within the community. A lot of times it's always a lack of resources. So the hardest part being a care coordinator or case manager is trying to go out and make those connections, then connect those clients with those resources. I have had a few different jobs doing this, and I think this job um, in particular, we really look at the whole person. We get to know their history. We really listen to who they are and we kind of get to the root of some things to see truly like, yes, you may need housing, but what's been keeping you from getting housing all this time? Okay, maybe there's some emotional and mental health barriers there. Let's address that first. So we kind of work from the bottom up with them and hold their hand. I I don't want, maybe at the beginning we hold their hand. We want to empower them to walk forward on their own, but I think we're very, very involved. We're not just, they come into our office once a week and we tick some boxes and then they leave and see us, you know, again next week. We're pretty frequent communication with our clients and we will go with them to their appointments, not just send them to, you know, oh, go here. There's a referral. Mm-hmm. We, we can take them and go with them, help them walk through that process. Like Claudia said, if they have anxiety at the dentist, I mean, I've gone with all of my clients and I sit next to them mm-hmm. while they're in the chair or hold their hand if they're freaked out at the dentist. We will do fun things with them also because we know like animals might bring them joy. So we're able to make connections to like piccolo farms, for example, and we can go and and let them play with the animals and just have a fun day together because it's been a crappy week and they need a break. Mm -hmm. So I think we get to get creative on top of all the other things that we do um, and all the resources that we provide. We really do get to be creative and very involved in their lives. So I know for me, I will do whatever it takes to meet my clients' needs. And I think that Our organization is good at hiring very committed people that really care about our clients. I think that that's a big difference, too, that our clients can see that we're very invested in them. And there's a lot of love. We're not just here for a paycheck. That's very intimate work. And so that brings me to a question about how do you take care of yourselves with all of this sort of intimate work that you do? I'm wondering also, are there nights that you are awake and you can't kind of get it out of your head. Can anybody talk to that? Being the intervention coordinator, I can definitely say that with the referrals that we get, there are times in the evening where I have to force my brain off because we have a lot of referrals that come in from people themselves that are going through these tough situations. And sometimes even our organization doesn't have all the resources to help them. So there are times where, you know, you're laying in bed and saying, could I have done more for them? Is there maybe a resource that I forgot to mention to them? And I do know at times for me, it's really hard to like 
not call them back, but you have to realize you don't know what situation they're in. So you can't call them back because you don't know if that could put them in harm's way. So I struggle a lot with that, with turning my brain off. And that looks like sometimes just going to the park and walking around or turning on a cheesy rom-com to get my mind off things because it is it is really hard. I think it's very important in this line of work that we stay in touch with our own mental health and see a therapist regularly. I think everyone needs to see a therapist regularly, but we do especially because we deal with such heavy topics on a regular basis. So staying in touch with our own bodies and our own mental health is extremely important for this line of work. Hmm. And Encora actually wants their staff to do that, and they encourage you all to do it regularly. And they provide funding. Yeah. I mean, yeah. They, they pay for therapy, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. There have been a lot of challenges that we've brought up here in this time that we've been talking. What's rewarding about it? What do you find to be the most rewarding about the work that you do on a daily basis? The success stories, hands down. It's a very difficult line of work. You're going to have more stories that don't go the way you would like for them to go. But every now and then you're going to get one maybe out of 20. And that story is going to be so worth it that it makes everything else just be beautiful. I personally love the little moments of joy that you get with clients, especially just in the car. A lot of times it's just a matter of like turning on a song that they like and they'll all sing along with you. And I know it, it's not it's not anything major, but it's just like seeing them smile, or maybe seeing them sing together and everybody in the car is just feeling it in the moment. Um, and I go home those days, I'm like, wow, maybe nothing major happened, but at least there was like a moment where we were together and we felt joyful. I think for me in the safe house is the safety that they feel um, that they can lay their head down somewhere safe at night. I have that comment said over and over and over, you know, like, I can't believe I have my own room with a lock on it. I can't believe I get to lock my door so that I don't wake up with somebody next to me. I can't believe I get to have this much food in this house. Do I get to eat anything I want in this house? Like, yes. So them just being really grateful and appreciative of like, the simple things that we don't think about that we just take for granted our safety, that it's so like they don't have it. And so when they come into the safe house, they feel almost overwhelmed that they have access to so many things that just keep them safe. And I think taking a shower without someone interrupting you. I mean, so many things that the ladies tell me, I don't know how honest we want to be, but I've had girls tell me I got to take a shower. No one walked in and put a needle in my arm. And that's a conversation, and those are comments I hear all the time in the safe house, especially when they start feeling more comfortable, because the most important thing is to be consistent with them. So I show up every day, and I'm talking to them every day, and I'm sitting down with them every day. And so then they start opening up um, with more of their story. And so it's a little bit, you feel good about your own safety when you hear how they don't have it and how they haven't had it for so long. And then for the safe house to just provide just a simple place for them to put their head down and not be bothered or woken up with anyone near them with drugs or weapons or demands. I know Claudia mentioned the moments of joy. When I'm thinking about having the survivors in group, witnessing them experience empowerment is probably, I get chill bumps every time. It never gets old to me. The moment when they realize 
I'm in control of my body. Mm. I'm in control of my destiny. And watching them get to that point on their own is it's gorgeous. It's probably one of my favorite things. A few of you have given some specific examples of either little successes or big successes. If you would start off with giving an example of a moment when someone realized that, like something you just talked about. Um, we recently had a Valentine's party, kind of like a Galentine's party. And um, we're painting and having snacks and doing all kinds of things. And I asked the question, like, does anyone have a really good Valentine's Day that they ever had or a really bad Valentine's Day, you know, experience? And one of our clients said, this is the best Valentine's Day I've ever had, mm-hmm. like surrounded by <laughs> you guys. And it was a little thing, but it was a huge thing, you know, for her to feel supported and loved on a day that's usually really sad for a lot of people. Mm-hmm. That reminds me of, I heard that we are having a prom. <laughs> and I heard <laughs> that Hanifa, this was your idea, right? The prom? Not solely. It was a team effort. Okay. Well, tell us a little bit about it. We decided to have a prom for survivors. So it was just going to be a nice night. It's a Friday where they can come, dress up, and just enjoy the evening. Really just take all the cares away, dance their heart out. Um, We'll have hopefully like a photo booth and other things like that. Just have a whole day about it. Um, Luckily, we came across an agency that was able to provide them with dress donations, and other stuff and other accessories. So like a purse and shoes, and they get to go and pick out exactly what they would like to wear to the prom and then just have a whole day of it. Hopefully we can get some people to come out and do hair and makeup and just have a whole day of self-pampering for them. It's just something that would be very beneficial for them to be able to have that experience. Well, and it sounds incredibly important, Marissa Brunel can probably speak to this, is through these interviews with the women I've met, their life experiences that don't get to happen in their lives. Birthday parties is one that last season, I have said this probably 10 times, but I think it's a great example. We were in an interview and someone said, yeah, we had a birthday party because she had never had a birthday party before. And the audio engineer gasped, you know, so it's these sorts of life experiences that these people don't get to have. Maybe they didn't even have the opportunity to have them. So that's a really creative way. You're talking about creativity to meet that need. I think it was birthed from the Valentine's party, right? Like that idea, because we were sitting around and one of our survivors is going to go to prom. So we were talking about that. And then the other one started chiming in about how they didn't go to prom. Mm. So I think that kind of got the wheels turning on that. So it was born out of just a discussion, like, this is another reason why it's great to get our clients all together because we learn more about their needs mm. when we just sit back and listen and let them talk and be who they are. And as an organization, I definitely want to go is to always provide them with those experiences that they haven't experienced. And um, it's never too late to go to prom. It's an adult prom, so. Mm-hmm. I love that we have, because of the donations that we get and the support that we have our nonprofit is able to do so many things that I think others are not. Like we are able to take somebody to the zoo, you know, because they've never been to the zoo before and that's been a dream of theirs. I think that the support that we get just really allows us to be able to put on these proms and these events and create this 
holistic mm-hmm. kind of environment that really meets their needs in like all of these fun, creative ways. So if there's somebody out there in the community who has access to these kind of activities and would like to sort of be a partner with us and be a part of your team in a way by gifting those kind of experiences, that would be one way that somebody could come alongside and be a part of what we do in a real way. Can you name some things that you guys would maybe like to do? I mean, I think it's always great for the care coordinators to have opportunities like that to spend one-on-one time with their clients because it does build rapport and it builds trust. So being able to like go get a facial together somewhere or get your nails done together, get a haircut, go to a show, go to a Broadway show, go to a movies, um, a museum, anything that just allows that client to experience something new, but also have that time with their care coordinator to really develop that trust. And um, that way, when it's time to work on the hard things and they have to talk about the hard things, then that trust is there. And so that care coordinator will just have a much more successful conversation because they've built time together. So community partnerships are super important. Anything we like to do fun, like yeah, everybody good, likes to do fun. That's a good point. So you think about the things you like to do, um, amusement parks, zoos, anything. Um, those are really great opportunities for us as an organization to show them that like we're here, we're consistent, and we want to be a part of your lives. Concerts. Oh, mm. concerts. Yeah, I think so. I've asked a lot of our clients like what's your favorite concert and most of them were like I've never been to a concert before I think that would be something fun for them I mean we all love music right this is music city after all (laughs) right I I think it's also helpful to have spaces where they can come together as a community of survivors um, and support each other right now we host a lot of our parties in our office which is great it's a great secure location but just having venues where clients can see each other can interact um, I think a really impactful thing for me was Hanifa did an awesome job of planning, hosting our Valentine's Day party. And she had this activity that was, I think it was called a drop in the bucket, where clients each got their own card and basically got to pass it around the room. And all of the other, like the care coordinators and the survivors, all they just said kind things about mm. that one person. Mm. And they got That's to save cool. that for a time when they were feeling discouraged or like that they weren't loved. Um, and just like watching them encourage and build each other up and, you know, share their experiences um, is just really, really important. You know, you talk about building trust and rapport and you guys are not just people who showed up and got this job and, you know, that was anybody. You guys have some really specific training. I mean, this is not easy work. So all of you guys, I mean, I think you're social workers, counselors. What what does it take to to be in a position where you're able to do this work well. So say there's a young person out there who says, I'd like to do this work. What should I do to prepare myself so that I can do this kind of work? Yeah, because I think what you're getting at is what have each of you done to get to this point? What educational training, what vocational training, what certifications? There's a lot of education that goes into it. Obviously, you absolutely have to be trauma-informed, strength-based, but Something that I've found extremely valuable is authenticity, being yourself and just coming to the table who you are, because if you are not authentic, they see straight through that. They're going to call you out on it. You have to show up and just be who you are. Training is important. Yes, absolutely. But being authentic, I think it's very valuable. It's it's a both and thing. Yes, absolutely. 
I mean, we all come from different backgrounds, which I think is really cool. We're not, not every single person in this room went to school for social work. I was a teacher before I did this job. So I have a very different experience than everyone else in this room. I know Emily can talk about this more, but I know Emily comes from kind of like a law enforcement background um, and that's one of her interests. So we all have different kind of interests and strengths and experiences. I think that's what makes the team so cool is that we're not Hmm. just one thing. Yeah, definitely going off Claudia. uh, I went to school for criminal justice and that's what I majored in. And after that, I did several internships with the TBI and academies through them. And I always knew something about human trafficking stood out to me. And I don't know what it was that drew me to it, but it really does take a special someone to go through this because it's not easy work and just being real and empathetic with the victims and the survivors is honestly the best thing that you can do tied with your educational background. I don't have a degree. So I joined the Army right out of high school. And so I did nine years uh, in the Army as a military policeman. And then I went into the medical field. So I did that for 14 years. And then I did volunteer work. That's kind of where I learned about all of our social problems was just getting into the weeds. Literally, I did homeless outreach for a few years, which is how I found out about human trafficking. And so that all kind of led me to Enslavery Tennessee. And I actually applied for the transportation coordinator job because I'm like, I'm not qualified. These other positions want degrees. I don't have a degree. So I'm just going to apply for the entry level and work my way up because this is what I want to do and this is where I want to be. And so when I was in my interview with the COO at the time, he just saw much more potential in my background and history and experience. And he was like, I really want you to interview for the resident manager position. And I was like, well, that's I'm not qualified for that. He's like, you are qualified for that. And so I had to reframe as well with somebody not having a degree, reframing what my experience is in the military with crisis management, clearly, um, with the medical field, and then also just all of my volunteer work. So I feel like I was probably the perfect candidate for the resident manager. Um, Mm -hmm. So I think that, yes, education is very important, but there are many different ways to get to where you need to be. So I think it's really important that we have to be quick on our toes. We absolutely have to be flexible with our population. Um, There are so many times that I plan an entire group and nothing goes as planned. I have to respond very quick on my toes. But there was one day that there was this big group that everyone wanted to do. So I did all this planning and no one was able to make it except for one client. And she was really bummed. She didn't feel like she wanted to do it anymore because it wasn't a group. So I'm like, okay, you know what? Forget it. It's a pretty day. Let's go to the park. Let's go for a ride. And like Claudia mentioned, they love music. We listen to music all the way there. And we were walking around Centennial just talking about shows that we were watching and music. And she got extremely emotional. And I stopped and I'm like, okay, what's going on? And she goes, is this what it feels like to be a real person? Mm -hmm. And it was hard for me not to get emotional in the moment because we It could not have been, it was like a movie because we were standing right in front of the women's suffrage movement. Just that moment of seeing her realize that she's out of what she came from and things can be different for her. And we sat and we talked through that. And then she was like, can we go get ice cream? So we went and got ice cream and it was just like, we just had a girl day. Well, I wonder if we could actually end this time with talking about 
experiences you've had while here that give you purpose in your work, that you feel like you remember them often, maybe women you've worked with or an experience you had. I just thought it would be really great to end this on a high, hopeful moment with stories. One of my favorite things that I was able to do while working here was um, helping a minor that had been trafficked by her family and then again by a stranger she had met online and just a very fragile, sweet, sweet girl. And I knew that Tennessee was not the place for her. It was dangerous for her to stay here. So I was able to find, after lots of calls and research, I found a nonprofit in another state that worked with minor victims and helped her to get into that program. It was a lot, and it had to happen very fast because she was in some imminent danger. And um, we got her in, and and slavery allowed me to accompany her. And so I flew her out to the other state, and I stayed with her for several days, helping her get settled in and acclimated and comfortable. And she actually ended up living there and staying in that program for almost three years. And she recently graduated as an adult and has decided to stay out of state and not come back, which I think is such a healthy choice because um, there's just too many negative influences associated with her home. That was one of my very favorite experiences. And I know it changed her entire life. If she had stayed here, it would have been a much different path. And that we have the privilege to go to those lengths to get our clients out of their situation if they want it. And she was very brave to take the leap. But that is one of my favorite things that I got to do because I got to see this this young girl's path of her life completely just shift within a couple months. So that was amazing. Yeah, that was a great story. I also, I know you said good stories and high note, and I think that's important, but I think what's also important is to understand not all of the stories that stand out to us are the high points, yeah, and it's true. okay to share that as well, if that's what you feel like you'd like to share, because that's a reality we deal with. And so high points, yes, are important, but also the other parts, I, I want to balance it with that option, if you feel like that's a story you'd like to share. I have a couple of stories. When you're talking about high and low, I think for a really long time, we didn't have resident staff. And so the holidays were really hard on our clients. And we tend to lose clients over the holidays, even to death, even to overdose death. Um, usually they'll take off during the holidays. It's a hard time for them. You know, it's a hard time. They don't have their children. They don't have their families. It triggers a lot of traumatic events from their own childhood. And so holidays are not always fun for the clients. It's usually surviving and let's get through this time because it's just difficult. And so every year we tend to lose somebody to relapse or to overdose. And this was the first year I didn't have anybody in the safe house take off or relapse or overdose. And so that's a big highlight for me that we're starting to get the support that we need in the safe house so that the ladies can feel safe and have somebody that if they're feeling some type of way, they have somebody they can talk to right there instead of trying to go out of the house and trying to figure that out. So I'm very grateful for that. A small little highlight for me, I have a client who moved into the safe house. She moved in during the day and I worked in the evenings. And so I came to the house and there was this tiny little fragile person sitting on the back deck and uh, she was just 
scared, didn't want to be there. She made a mistake. She should have never come here. She wants to take off. And I was like, hey, it's 630. There's nowhere to go safe tonight. Why don't you just stay here tonight? Just stay here tonight. You know you have a safe bed. What's going to happen if you leave this deck right now? Where are you going to go? Let's just wait till the morning. We'll have somebody figure out what your next step needs to look like. Okay, fine. She'll stay through the night. Next day, she was there again. Same thing. I don't want to be here. I don't want to be here. Okay, how about just stay one more night? They couldn't figure stuff out for you today. Stay one more night. Let's really see if we can figure it out tomorrow. And I'm just trying to get the girl to stay. And so she stays another night. And then the next night, I see her again. I was like, oh, she's still here. You know, in my head, I'm like, great, (laughs) she's still here. And she was like, I'm still here. I guess I'll stay. Mm -hmm. (laughs) I don't know where else I would go. This is a safe place. Because also, they don't know where they're at when they're in the safe house. They don't even know if if it's safe, right? And so she's starting to learn that it's a safe place. So I show up again, and the next night I show up, she's calling out to me from the deck. I st- I'm stayed. Look, I'm here. I'm here. Do you see me? And I was like, you are here. Like, that's fucking, that's awesome. <laughs> I'm so glad to see you. And so I tell her all the time, like, I'm, I'm going to see you tomorrow, right? Yeah, yeah, you'll see me again tomorrow. And so she would wait for me on the deck, and I would come in. And so that's special to me because she did end up doing really well in the program. She she got knocked down a few times. She picked herself back up because she knows that we're consistent. She knows that she can come back to us. She knows that no matter what's going to happen, we're going to be here. Our doors are always open no matter what. And so she learned that, and I taught her that. And we teach them that as an organization, that like no matter how many times you get knocked down, no matter how many times you run off, no matter how many times you relapse, like – our front door is always here. So come back and let's let us help you. And so, um, yeah, I'm super proud of her just sticking it out. And she's she's doing really great. I keep up with her. It, she's been out of the house for a few years now, but I keep up with her on social media and she's just doing amazing. So I'm glad she stayed. Mm. <laughs> we have a lot of successful stories in this job, but there's also a lot of sad stories. And I think... We have clients pass away sometimes, um, which is a sad thing. And I had not had anybody pass away that I specifically worked with until a couple months ago. And um, I was working with a minor, and she was so smart and just beautiful and so clever and funny. And we were meeting every few weeks. And she ran away. And I was very worried about her because I knew that she had a lot of ties back into her trafficker and drugs. And um, I tried to keep up with the family and check in on her. And then I found out a couple months ago, I got a call from law enforcement. They found her passed out on the side of the road and she had overdosed and went to the hospital and she passed away from an overdose. And this is a very young person. And I think that that's just a reality of our job, sadly. I'm surprised it hasn't happened more often, but just having to face that and realize like, man, this person had so much life ahead of them. I think every care coordinator here has lost somebody to, usually it's addiction or suicide, and it's part of the job, but we keep going. And I think we rely on those success stories to keep us motivated. Well, and each other too, because you need each other because how many other people get this? Not a lot of people get this. So the people that we work with, we rely on each other to get through. What we deal with 
it's kind of important to have another support system. We all are supporting survivors, but by supporting our team and our mm, staff, yeah. you are also supporting survivors in that secondary way. So I want to also say, if you want to be a part of our team, think about how you can help partner with the people who are helping the survivors. You know, do you teach CPR? You know, could you come donate your time and give a CPR class certification for our team? Do you have some other kind of skill that you could offer our team and give them some support? Um, and sometimes just like they support survivors with some of these non-traditional things some way, you know, sometimes it's just nice to get a night out to mm-hmm. go out to dinner together mm-hmm. so that, that, that we have the time to process in a way that's not, that the whole organization doesn't have to kind of figure out, but that somebody can say, hey, look, I, I'd like to offer up a time for you guys to go be together as a team. So if there's something like that, especially our audience, if you hear, if you think of things and your heart feels like you want to help us and be a partner, please, please consider what that might be and how you can come alongside with us. Well, thank you all for your work. This has been a really lovely time. And I think it'll be so good to hear all of your different interactions. Um, we've heard from care coordinators before. We've heard from Kelsey before. But having like transportation coordinator and residential, I mean, all of that is just so good. So thank you for making this time today. I really appreciate it. Thank you for having us. Mm-hmm. We'd like to thank Junior League of Nashville for being a community awareness partner with someone like me. Our producers are Stacey Elliott, Caitlin Reed, and myself, Leslie Eiler-Thompson. In addition to being a producer, Clara Bidigari-Curtis is our engineer, and she is assisted by Selena De La Cruz. Special thanks to our intern, Riley Herman. The original music you hear is by Zach and Maggie White.